To imagine for a second that uh, you are part of a street gang. I'm hoping that for most of you in the room, that is a imaginary thing. <clears throat> Heard a great joke once about if if Christianity, if Christianity is true or not. If you were, wanted to prove to someone that Christianity was true, that you could just ask them this simple question: um, If it's late at night and you found yourself in the wrong part of town, and you accidentally took a wrong turn, and you're going down an alley, and that alley is dark and deserted, and your car conks out. It's late at night, no cell service, you're sitting in your car, you decide, I better go for help. So you get out of your car, and you walk about halfway down this alley, which is... Uh, it's got uh, uh, buildings on both sides, so it's, you're kind of locked in. And just as you get about halfway to where the end of the alley is, your car is the other halfway back, you look and there are seven big, large men coming towards you. And you're struck with fear because you're halfway to the car and halfway out and you don't know which way to go. Here, here's the way that proves Christianity. Would it make any difference to you whatsoever if you knew that those seven guys just came from a Bible study? Huh? Yes. If those seven guys had just come from a Bible study, you're like, hey, whew, whew. Let's just say you are part of a street gang. And uh, you are, you, you, there's a dozen or so of you in your, in your gang, and you are... You cause trouble in your neighborhood. And this goes on for years and years. You're growing up years, your, your, your later, your early high school years, even until you're in your early 20s and you're part of this gang. And then one of the members of the gang comes back and he says, I'm going to quit the gang. And you say, what? Been part of this gang for a long time, known you since you were a kid. Why are you going to quit the gang? And he says, well, I've become a follower of Jesus Christ and I don't want to do the things that that I've been doing, and you are very angry with this person because this person has been part of your, your group now for a long time, and they're trying to, to get out. But you decide, you know what? I've known this person my whole life, and so I'm going to hear them out. And through the course of the next two months in hanging with this person and hearing their story and hearing what Jesus Christ is all about, not only you, but every person in your gang becomes a follower of Christ. It'd be pretty amazing. Now let's just say you're up late one night and you're in your gang hideout, whatever that is, but you're, you're somewhere you got the lights on, it's late one night, and you're in there and what you're doing is you're talking about God. You're having a Bible study, even though you may not call that that yet, you got your Bibles open and you're, you know, your language might even be not quite yet redeemed, but you're having this intense discussion about theological issues with these other guys. And the neighbors are not quite so forgiving yet. They know that in the last couple months things have been a little bit down as far as crime goes, but they see the light on over there and a mob forms. A mob forms and they're coming towards you. And they yell at you. Come on out here. And so you do come out there. And they say, what is going on? Why are you up so late at night? What is going on? We are afraid for what you're going to do. And we are here to stop you. Whole big mob. 
Now, what do you say? Well, you could say, you know, oh, I'm really sorry for what I've done before. You know, I'll make amends and I won't do it before. But you've been saying that to this group of neighbors for the last 10 years, those very words. So those are shallow. What do you say to this group of angry people who've come to your door? You tell them about Jesus. You tell them the life-changing story that Jesus Christ came to earth, walked among us, died in our place, and rose from the dead. If you want to communicate Christianity to someone, you start with Jesus. Christianity is Christ. It starts and ends with Jesus. It's about his setup of a sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It's about his prophecies concerning when he was going to come. It continues on when he was born and through his life, his teachings, his miracles, his willing submission to the Father's will to crush him on our behalf. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, and now, today, in the here and now, it's about his sending his spirit to take from what is his and bring it to you. It is about Jesus from first to last. Now, why is that a big deal? Christianity is not a religion. Now, I know what you're taught in school. There are three great religions of the world, or six, or however many there are. Christianity is not just a system of rules in order for you to behave an almighty God. It's not just that. It is that, but it's so much more. If you just think that Christianity is those things, you are missing the main point. Now, let's go back to that mob scene. Take that context of what's going on there, and let's go back 2,000 years to what happened right after the day of Pentecost. You've got 12 disciples plus probably 100 and 108 more people. The Bible talks about 120 people were in some room and something amazing happened. While they were praying, there was suddenly this great rush of wind, at least the sound of that, like, a, like rustling, like a roar, like a sea roar. And all of a sudden, they saw these Things coming, flying over, they called them tongues like fire, and they split apart and landed on each person in the room, and they start speaking another language, like French or Swahili or all these different languages start to come out of these people's mouths, and they start to declare the praises of God. Now, the neighbors hear this. Remember, the neighbors are suspect of these Christians to begin with. Remember, they, they, they're the ones that crucified or at least were the ones who yelled, crucify him, crucify him, to the, to the uh, authorities. And now they got, oh great, they rented out the next door, next door upper room to the Christians. Great. They're so loud. And now look at this. Now they got these tongues of fire thing going on. <laughs> so the whole crowd, there's a great crowd that comes to find out what is going on. If you remember from last week, the way it ends is some of them say, what does this mean? They think God is up to something. Other ones say, whoa, no, 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 no. Too much te tequila. They've had too much wine. And now this week we're going to look at how does Peter respond to this mob? If you got your Bible with you, it opened up to Acts chapter 2, or you can follow along on the insert, or you can um, 
Look at the screen, whichever, whichever works better for you. <clears throat> What's going to happen here in this, in this passage is it is the very first Christian sermon. The very first Christian sermon is ever going to be given. And he's going to speak to a crowd that it is amazing what happens because they come relatively angry. They don't like Christians to begin with. And what happens is, at the end, I'm not going to tell you. You'll find out yourself. But it switches. Some things happen. As I looked at it this week, it became clear to me what Peter was doing was answering questions that people had. And that's really all that good communication is. Is you think through what would the questions of the group that I'm supposed to speak to, what would their questions be? And he, I picked out six questions that Peter answers that this particular group would have had a hard time with. So I'm just going to pick it like that. We're going to go through the passage. The first question is, obviously, what is going on here? There's these foreign languages happening here. What is going on? Explain this to us. What does this mean? Or are you really drunk? And look at Peter's answer in chapter 2, verse, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. Now that's significant. Not everybody stood up. Peter and the other ten original disciples and Matthias, they stand up. Because they are the eyewitnesses to Christ throughout his whole ministry, his, his death and his resurrection. They stand up. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now, it's a large crowd. We're going to find out that it was at least 3,000 people. That's a big crowd. And he says this. He says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Remember, everybody's gathered there for this Feast of Pentecost. And there's going to be tons of people from all over the, the region here for this particular event. And so they're around. He says, let me explain to you this. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, somehow in that culture, that must have worked. I know some of you live in the dorms, and that doesn't work. <laughs> um, but in that culture, nine in the morning, no one would be drunk by then. No, this is what was supposed, to, uh, this is what's spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, that is significant. Peter is going to quote an Old Testament prophet who was saying the Messiah is coming. The day of the Lord is coming, Joel said. And it's going to happen by, and I, I believe we looked at this last week. If we didn't, I saved it for this week. I can't remember right now. But where it says, the Holy Spirit will be poured on you. Look at what he quotes. He quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32. And he says, in the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, there's a lot here going on. <clears throat> First of all, what Peter is saying is, this is what's happening right here, right now, today. With this, what you're seeing, with this outpouring, where we're speaking in other languages, and we're prophesying, and that's what he's saying, your young men will prophesy, and daughters and, and sons and daughters will prophesy, 
You're seeing that happen. What he's saying is, we are in the last days. That's what he's telling them. He's saying, we are here right from this moment on, people of Jerusalem. We are in the last days. It's starting here. Now, one thing you have to know about prophecy in the Old Testament, sometimes there's multiple conclusions or multiple occasions that fulfill it. For instance, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a phrase that's used often in the Old Testament that can mean have multiple fulfillments. It can happen on a judgment in the Old Testament. Maybe a nation would come in and, and, and take over the country. Or it can happen, it happened when Christ came on the scene. It happened certainly at his uh, death and resurrection. And it happened at Pentecost. And the last time it will happen, some people even say we're living in the day of the Lord. But the last time it will happen will be on the judgment day, the final day of the Lord. But what Peter is saying is, and this is pretty radical, is that we are, to, as of today, we are in those last days. This is it. What you have been waiting for, and these are all Jews, they all knew this passage. When he said, we are in these days, they would have been like, whoa. That's pretty significant. So what, what, uh, what Peter is saying is the answer, the question was, what's all these languages about? And the answer is, it's, fulfill, it's this fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. The day of the Lord is here. Now that sparks their interest. There's no question that they ask, but they probably would have asked the question, well, who is this Jesus? And so Peter starts to ask it. Verse 22 says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, or some versions say approved by God, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. That last little sentence there is really key. These people know that Jesus did miracles. And yet they said he's a sham. But now, whoa, something's happening after him that makes us think that maybe he really was. So the starting point that, that Peter's going to start with is that these people, or that, excuse me, that Jesus was a man from, sent from God who did miracles. But he's going to go much further than that. But before he gets there, he's going to answer the question, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, who killed Jesus? According to that passage, who killed Jesus? Wicked men? Wicked men would refer to, you know, Pilate and Herod and all those who were part of the scheme on, on the... Uh, government side of it. Did they kill Jesus? Nah, kind of. Did the Jews, did the Jews kill Jesus? It says you, with the help, put him to death by nailing him across. Did they put him, to put him to death? No. Sure, they were responsible for it, but look who put Jesus to death. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God the Father put Christ to death. Hamlet, uh, 
couple, two, three years back over at the other building gave a great message on the, the trials of Christ, or the trial of Christ. I can't remember which gospel you went through, Hamlet. But um, showing very clearly that Jesus actually articulated his own death sentence. Jesus wanted them to kill him. Mel Gibson right now is getting a lot of heat for his, his, uh, his movie, The Passion. And when it comes out, we're hoping to do some big splash things. I've got uh, John Piper down at Bethlehem Baptist wrote a book on it called The Passion of the Christ. And he's going to give us a whole box load of books. So we're going to start there and who knows what else we're going to do. Mel Gibson is getting a lot of heat for this movie because it shows the biblical account of what happened on the, the last 12 hours of Christ's life. And Jews don't like it because it puts Jews in a, in a bad light. They're saying that the movie is anti-Semitic. Actually, if you think that God the Father put Jesus to death and the Jews were kind of pawns in the deal, the movie, therefore, is anti-God, right? Because God put Jesus to death. It's not anti-Semitic. I, I hate to say it, but they were just kind of pawns in the deal. They were responsible for putting him to death. But don't be anti-Semitic because of that. It would have been any of us. Our sin put Christ to death. God the Father orchestrated it. He would have orchestrated it here and today. Any, any group. Jesus was a Jew. Okay? God the Father put him to death. So he'll, who killed Jesus? He was sent to the cross by God through men. Particularly the Jewish people. Yes. But don't. Be anti-Semitic because of that. So then the Jews would be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we, we, we did, we killed this guy. And now look what's happening. These guys are speaking in Swahili in front of us. Oh, bad move. Isn't he dead? We killed him. And then Peter says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In another sermon we're going to see in a couple of weeks, a few weeks down the road, chapter 3, Peter calls him the author of life. He tells the Jews, you killed the author of life. What a great phrase. I mean, it's a horrible phrase, but I mean, it's a great, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will, you let, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now, that's uh, Peter quotes David from Psalm 16. And he says, this is what David said. And I love this next, this next verse. He says, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch D David is dead. I have seen his bones. Isn't that a great thing? This guy's dead. David is dead and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would, take, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Peter makes a simple case saying, obviously David was not talking about David because David is toes up. David is some tomb somewhere. Probably bones are rattling like last week. They're very dry bones. You know, they're dead. And now, David wasn't talking about David. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Christ. 
and Christ rose from the dead. He was raised to life on that first Easter Sunday. Now, question. Okay, if he's raised to life then, where is he now? Who is he now? Peter goes on, verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. So David's not talking about David when he quotes, Psalm, uh, quotes David here from Psalm 110. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord, kurios, means king, means ruler, means God. Christ was, we already said he was fully man, but now Peter dials it up a couple notches. He's God. He's ruler of all, but you know what else? He's the Messiah. You guys just killed the Messiah. He was the Savior. Now, I don't understand conversion. I, I don't even, I look back at my own life, and 20-some years ago, I made, a, I made a decision to be a follower of Christ. Why I did it then and why I didn't do it at other times that the message of Christ made sense to me, I don't know. Why, what's going to happen here next, why these people get it now and didn't get it 53 days earlier where they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, give us the other thief. You're going to let one prisoner go free, give us the other thief and crucify the Christ. Why they didn't get it then, I don't know. But they get it. They're asking the question, what do you mean whom you crucified how can we get out of this? We, we killed the author of life. We, we were the one who, on, on a human level, were the ones who sent him to his death. We were the ones who disbelieved in him. Oh my goodness. He really was who he said he was. Is there any hope for me? Now, anyone here who's wrestled with any kind of sin in your life where it's not just the Whatever little sin is and big sin is. By the way, you know, the Catholics have two kinds of sins. What is it? Uh, venial and mortal? Is that right? They get it right? Uh, I got bad news for you. Biblically, there's no such thing as a venial sin. It's all mortal. Oh, great. See how many people come back next week. Uh, <laughs> it's all mortal. It's all deserving death. All of it. It's all big sin. There, if you haven't come to that point in your life where you're a little frantic about your sin... You don't get sin. The most graceful thing I could tell you this morning is that your sin is a big deal. And you should hyperventilate over it a little bit. Going, oh my gosh. How could God, could God actually forgive me? If, if you don't have that reaction, you don't really understand that you have slapped a holy God in the face. Look at their reaction. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is, remember, this is an angry mob coming to the 
coming to the place saying, what's going on? What's all this noise about? You guys are drunk. And a few short verses later, they're asking, what, what, what should we do? How can we make this right? Peter's answer, you can never make this right. But you can allow the Messiah to be the Messiah. Look at his answer. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, look at what, the, what he says to do there. He says to repent. Repent is a simple word. It means to take 180 degrees the other way. To turn from something. Whatever you're holding on to is your God. Or whatever you're holding on to is something that's going to fill you. You've got to let it go. And then he says to be baptized. That's an interesting thing. Why doesn't he say believe like he does in other paths? Why does he say to be baptized? Now, this is a Baptist church. You know that. And I like baptism. I think it's great. But I'm not going to say that you have to be baptized in order to be a Christian. You don't. But he tells them that's what they should do. Now realize, this is a Jewish audience. The Jews full well knew what baptism was. It was for scummy Gentile people who wanted to become Jews. They could go through a whole process, and then they got baptized, and then they became Jewish proselytes. They became converts to Judaism. Guess what he's telling them to do? He's saying, you are like a Gentile scummy person. Now, I'm talking to mostly Gentile scummy persons here. I don't know if we have any Jewish people in the room, but that's what he says. You have to be like that. You have to say, I'm willing to be baptized to be a follower of Christ. You've got to humble yourself. Repent, turn away, and turn towards God and humble yourself, every one of you. Now, don't get me wrong. I think baptism is a great thing. If you'd like to get baptized, we're going to have a baptism in about, uh, what is that, February 22nd here in the church. Just uh, let us know, write on your card or talk to me or talk to Hamlet or somebody. It's a great thing. We love that. The promise is for you and your children. If you, if you just stop and think about this, this is where grace is at its cutting moment here. These are the very people who might have even, as Christ was being crucified, might have been mocking him. These are the very people, if, if there was ever an understanding for revenge, it was now. Christ could have said, everybody else gets forgiveness except anybody who's standing here right now while I'm undergoing intense physical pain and the spiritual pain of absorbing all your sin onto me from the Father. That's not what he does. Peter says, you know what? You, you can come in. David Gooding in his book, True to Faith, has a great little it's one, two sentences here. He says, they, and talking about what Peter offered to them, it says, they, this crowd, they had murdered God's son. He was offering them his spirit. They had crucified the second person of the Trinity. He was offering them the third. They had thrown God's son out of the vineyard in the hope of inheriting the vineyard themselves. Now he was inviting them to receive God's spirit not just into their vineyard, but into their very hearts to, the, to be their undying life, to be the earnest and guarantee of an infinite and imperishable inheritance. When you should get trashed on, that's not what you get. You get grace. It's amazing. Look at how they respond. Acts, Acts verse, uh, 2, verse 40. 
With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Woo, instant church just had one sermon. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the managerial nightmare of trying to follow up 3,000 communication cards, Hamlet? <laughs> oh my goodness. 3,000 people. There's roughly around 300 people in this room on a Sunday morning. Ten times the number of people in this room. One message. Dude, that's money. Question for you and I. Same question that they asked. What must we do? Let me talk first of all to those people in the room who've already made a profession of faith in Christ. And you are anxious to talk to other people about Jesus. Look at this message, not my message, Peter's message, as, as an example. What does Peter talk about? Does he talk about himself? Not at all. He talks about Jesus. Christianity is about Christ. One of the things that gives me more comfort than anything is knowing that I'm not trying to, when I talk to people, and I talk to people all the time, 20 years or so, of talking to people about being a follower of Christ, uh, it's not about me. I'm not trying to recruit them to become a follower of Steve. You don't want that. Ask my wife. She will tell you, don't do that. But it's about Jesus. It's about Christ. It's about his life and his death and his resurrection. It's about his ministry and his healing. It's about his sending of the Holy Spirit into your life now to change you from the inside out, to give you a relationship with God. It's about having your sins, those things that you feel, oh my gosh, if anyone knew about these. God knows about all of them. He knows about every single one of them. And yet he offers you forgiveness. That's what it's about. That gives me more hope than anything else as I'm talking to other people about Christ. I think, oh, if you knew how much of a, a, a mess in my own life, how I deal with pride and, and other selfish, selfishness on myself, I'm not trying to recruit you to me. I'm not trying to recruit you to a religion. I'm trying to recruit you to be a follower of the one who's worthy of it, and that's Christ. In your talking to other people, do you really try to recruit them to you, or do you try to recruit them or engage them in Christ? Now, let me talk to people in the room who maybe have never come to the point in their life where they say, what must I do? What must I do? Maybe this morning as you're sitting there, uh, your heart is cut to the quick, as it said. Your heart was cut. And you say, oh my, I'm frantic about my sin. The worst thing I could do is not make it clear how you can have your sins forgiven this morning. It's really, it's really simple. You just come to Jesus Christ right where you're at. In the moment, I'm going to close in prayer. And right then and there, right as you're seated here, you could say, Christ Right now, I'm going to let you be those two things, Lord and Christ. I'm going to let you be my Lord. I'm going to turn from everything else. I'm going to follow you all the rest of my days. And Savior, you're the one who died on the cross for my sin. Not just my good sin, my yucky sins. I'm going to let you have those. I'm going to give them to you. Christ, come into my life and free me from this. You can pray a simple prayer like that right where you're at. You can start your relationship with Christ. Let me close in prayer. And if, and if that's your heart, and that you'd like to do that, or 
If you're someone who has already made that commitment, but you'd like to renew that commitment right where you're at, when you come down for communion this morning, just tell one of the people, I, I made a commitment this morning. Would you pray for me? That's all you have to say. Just no other, no, Nobody's going to take your name or anything like that. Just want to know and be able to pray for you. Let's pray together as we close. Jesus, we just ask that uh, you'd continue to teach us in our journey here through the book of Acts and in our journey through life. And God, I know in this room there are as many needs as there are people and, and by your spirit alone can they be met. And so I pray, Father, that you would meet them. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are constantly asking, what must we do now? In light of this Christ who's there, what must we do now? And so, Lord, I pray for those of us who maybe have been followers of you for a while that, that you just teach us what is it we must do now. We would be more ardent followers of you. We'd turn away from those things that, that so easily tangle us up into sin and, and other, other things, God, that we would just be given to be able to go towards you. And, Lord, I pray, especially, Lord, for those in this room who maybe for the first time in their lives are saying, I want to be a follower of Christ this morning. I want my sins to be taken care of. I do not want to meet God on my own with carrying my sin and having to pay for that. I want Christ to be my sin bearer. God, I pray this morning that you would grant your spirit to encourage and your spirit to move. And God, that, um, that you give them the courage to step out in faith and to trust you. It's not an easy thing. You call us to a hard life. And so, Lord God, I pray that, the, that right now, even as I'm speaking, that there may be prayers going on where people are allowing you to be both Lord and Christ and Savior of their lives. Jesus, just come and move in our midst, even now as we move to a time of communion and uh, worship of, of you as an awesome, awesome God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.